Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Do you ever wonder what college students think about masculinity and about fatherhood? Our guest today is a college professor and he teaches a popular class called Man Up. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-host Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Thanks for being our listeners and thank you for supporting our sponsors. What do college students think about masculinity, about fatherhood, about the trauma and violence faced by men in society? Kevin Roy, a family science professor at the University of Maryland, can tell us. He teaches a popular class called Man Up, focusing on masculinity and how it affects family health and well-being. He is recognized as an expert in the field of fatherhood research. He's also the father of three boys. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So good to have you and excited for this conversation today. What attracts students to take your Man Up class? That's a good question. I think I've 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 wondered about it myself. Uh, <laughs> we started offering it in 2017, and the first time we offered it, we had 80 students sign up. And so it's it's not a required course. It's like a an elective for freshmen meant to engage them on current issues. But I teach it now four times a year. It's fully loaded. There's always a waiting list. I think it's interesting. Easily half, if not more than half, the students are young women, and so I think the young women are coming and saying. What is going on with guys? Like they cannot figure out either, you know, their their partners, their boyfriends, their friends, their fathers, their brothers. And over time, they've just kind of gotten to this point where they need to figure out what's going on with men, what's stressing them out, why are they interacting in ways that they do? So that's, I think that's one thing. I think um, the young men who take the course are really interested in exploring different ways of thinking about what is it to be a guy? You know, why do I have to be this way? Can it be another way? Um, we, we talk a lot about very different notions of masculinity and fathering. So we talk about race. We talk about class. We talk about queer uh, masculinities. I mean, a whole range of ways to be men. And I think it asks the questions that students want to ask now. And yeah. no one's asking them, you know, you can open up the, the the social media and immediately there's something on masculinity every single day from politicians, from, you know, folks in the street. And how do you, how do you understand that? How do you have a kind of a framework for, for understanding it? So, you know, you're echoing something that we have heard from other people, which is that guys, especially on boys podcasts, like give them mm -hmm. a safe space to wrestle with these questions. They want to have these conversations. You're the first person that we've talked to who's creating a space where you've got males and females in the room mm -hmm. wrestling with these questions. And I think that is so valuable. And I can see it being a really difficult thing to be doing at this point in time right now. 
It's it's challenging. I think we have a, a really interesting mix. We have uh, in Maryland and definitely the students who take this course, a very diverse group of students. So well over half of them are students of color. Uh, a number of athletes take the course because they they see it as a, uh, I don't know if it's an easy A, but it's something that they really can engage in. I mean, the, the culture of, of athletics is very masculine in so many ways, right? Yeah. So I think the coaches are interested in having them take it. Yeah. I mean, my, my point of view is, you know, this term toxic masculinity on social media, it's uh, people feel like being masculine is toxic, that that's, you know, and they come in saying, is that true? What does that mean? And I really want to make everything open for discussion and, you know, different ways of expressing it and struggling with it and asking these questions um, safe and engaging. I mean, no one's right in this. I think we're all kind of working through some really tough changes. So I love that you have the students interview their fathers or a father figure in their life. Tell us about that. I've been doing research for 20 or 30 years with fathers and my, what I do is I'm an ethnographer and a qualitative researcher. So I work with life history theory. So I'm very, I find lives fascinating over time. So I like to sit down one-on-one and I've been doing that in jails and prisons on the South side of Chicago and fathering programs with young immigrant fathers. I mean, all over the country for a long time. So I thought to bring that kind of, one-on-one assignment in the class was something that I could resonate with. I could help craft it. And I think I thought the students would get something out of it. I can say now that over all my years of teaching, it's been like the greatest intervention I've ever done in my life. I have over a thousand of these interviews. And when you read them, it's requiring students. I mean, fathers don't open up most don't <laughs> easily, right. kind of naturally, regularly. And so when you come to them saying, you know what, I got a course, my teacher wants me to do this. The father say, oh, I'll help out. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, so it gives sure, them a structure. Because you're tapping into, you know, I mean, most dads, like you're, you're helping support your kid in education. Right. So do your homework. You've said that all these years. Right. So. And, and the focus isn't as much on their relationship as it is about students trying to learn about his experience as a father. And so oftentimes it becomes a discussion of who was your role model? Well, let me tell you about your grandfather. What was it like? When I first learned I was going to have a baby, what about how does work fit into it? How does the pandemic, uh, I had cancer. I mean, all of these things that men don't connect with over time, they cut, you put your head down and just get through it and get through it and get through it. It gives the men a chance to make these connections with their kids and the students, because they know these men so well, they can intuit what this really means. Like, what does it mean when he's talking about his dad and he was his, you know, he says a particular thing and and I understand my grandfather in a particular way, but I learned so much. So they're fascinating. And I, and I think in the end, I think it creates a bond. Sometimes it wasn't there. I've had students right. who interview their dads who are incarcerated and they haven't seen their dads in 20 years. I have seen students work with their fathers who, because of divorce or estrangement, it's been a long time, you know, so that's risky. I mean, that's really hard to do. How do you support students? Through that, you know, obviously there is such um, such value in having those conversations. It is hard to interview and reach out to somebody that you don't know very well, period. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. When that person is a person with whom you have a personal history that may include, you know, pain and feelings of abandonment, whatever the circumstances that's a really difficult thing to do at any age. So yeah. how do you help students kind of navigate that? I didn't set it up this way, but it's kind of become clear 
the structure of the interview, I give them three or four questions to okay. start. And I say, you can ask whatever you want to. I mean, but start with these three. And it's kind of who taught you to be a father? What was it like when you first learned to be a father? Have there been big changes in the way you've been a father over the past you know, 20 years? And it gives them a chance to focus on the fathers and not the relationship if the relationship is tough. Mm-hmm. It gives them a structure to move in. So sometimes fathers will address a point and won't do anything else. And that's okay. I mean, the student can pursue that or not. You know, It's kind of uh, whatever pe- people bring to the table is fine. So there's no kind of expectations. Talk to me about your difficult relationship. Um, <laughs> and sometimes when the students write that, they write it up as like a paper. Sometimes they go into detail about that. Sometimes not. And that's fine. Also, I... Um, I mean, in a class of this size, it's like 40 to 80, they can't stand up and talk necessarily about your paper, but we break into small groups and we say, you know, what was the thing you learned that you hadn't expected? What was tough? And there they share a lot. And and I think they really enjoy that part, the kind of peer interaction to say, oh my God, my dad did that too. Or I, I have that same issue. You know, there's some solidarity in there. Yeah, yeah. So th- I think that's important. Are there some common themes that tend to come up? And the reason why I'm asking this is because, you know, First of all, as a young person, early in your college uh, career, you may not have thought critically at all about like what life is like for your dad, what his experience was. Um, And yet, in the course of so many students doing these interviews, I would expect that a couple themes sort of keep coming up that maybe help them understand the male experience in the world, masculinity and fatherhood. Definitely. I think there are a couple. I mean, I'll say first off, if the students are diverse, I mean, their fathers are extremely diverse. We have... What I love about this group of interviews that we've got, and we're starting to kind of work with them and look through them almost as research too, um, is that we have fathers who were, you know, born in all different parts of the world, parts of Africa and Asia and Latin America. They've come here. So they're navigating different cultures, religions. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff. I would say what's pretty common is that their father's are able to talk about challenges and the pain that they've experienced over the past 20 years. I think that they feel, and I'm not just saying this, I think they feel very trapped by what I would call the man box. Like there is one way to be a father. There's one way to be a guy. That's the way it is. And that's what my grandfather taught me. My, you know, my father, my grandfather taught me. So I moved through the family. And now I'm at the point in my life where I'm saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's bigger than that. It doesn't have to be that way. I need to break out of some of that. Some of that was really harmful, you know? And I think having a child who's 18 or 20, you have a lot of fathering experience at that point. The child's old enough to understand some of that. And so you see those discussions start to happen. Um, Not as much regret, although there's that, as kind of recognizing there were these turning points that um, I didn't handle well, or I could, I could really only do what I had, you know, the resources for, or because of the divorce, you know, things went haywire, but we've been able to pull it back together. So it helps men create what we call like a narrative identity. When you tell your story of your life, you're creating mm-hmm. an identity for yourself and you bust out of that typical, like, well, I've worked at a job for 40 years and I've been married and I've had a kid and, you know, put them through college. Like it, it becomes much more real. And they're sharing it with their child, which is great. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's really important. So, And as you said, you know, it's interesting what they choose to focus on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not just the timeline. I was born, I had you, and, you know, here we are. So it's telling what parts along that timeline that they focus on. I just realized in the course of this conversation, you know, Kevin, you're talking about the questions and I'm like, huh. 
maybe I should ask my dad some of these questions. Like, and he's, his, he'll be 86 in a couple yep. days. And so that's where my head's been. And I just realized as you're talking, you know, these dads that your kids are interviewing. Yeah. That's like my kid's dad. That's my generation. <laughs> and, you know, I have full disclosure or listeners know this. You may not. I've been divorced from my kid's dad for, you know, over a decade now. I can't quite see him having this conversation with our kids. And yet I think it would be so valuable. And yeah. to have that structure, mm-hmm. that's a gift for families, really. Yeah. There are a lot of kids in that situation where they will say, I'm not sure I can talk to my dad. And I'll say, well, let's talk about this. And, uh, you know, and they'll say, well, I'll, tr- uh, you know, I'll try it. I'll offer it out there and see. And I thought that's all you, it's all you can do, you know, right. and see if he's interested in talking. So what about, I mean, I'm going to guess that in these years, there's been at least a couple of kids who don't have a dad that's either alive or somebody that yes. they can reach. How do you handle that? So the, the, another requirement of the paper is you find a father to talk to. And it doesn't, I said, most mm-hmm. students do it with their fathers, but you might prefer not to, you might choose a father figure. So, mm-hmm. and that's very common. We've had a number of people interview their coaches and their pastors or their stepfathers mm-hmm. or friend of the family or their grandfather, um, you know, and then it, it's a little different, but it's still, they learn a lot about men's experiences that way. And these are usually men who mean something in their lives. So that's yeah. important. Yeah. yeah. So you study lives over time. I'm curious how you see the students shifting over the time of your course. Well, that's interesting. Um, I think, uh, let me see. So we we start with some kind of basic ideas about masculinity. And I think immediately kind of throw a lot of things out of the, throw them off well, the table. Let's so, talk about that a little bit, because, you know, your students do come in with whatever they've heard. Sometimes they haven't even really put put it into form yet about masculinity. Right. You mentioned toxic masculinity. There's lots of discussion, debate. What does that mean? Different understandings of that. How do mm-hmm. you help them tease that apart in the beginning? Like, again, these are potentially inflammatory conversations yeah. right now. And you've Very got males and females yes. with different experiences trying mm-hmm. to wrestle with that. How do you do that? Yeah. So I think um, a lot of people come in again from social media with the impression that masculinity is toxic, that men just by nature do horrible things or hard things. And and many of the students have experienced tough things with men in their lives, even the men themselves. Um, yeah. What's helped me is having a public health perspective. So I'm, I teach in a school of public health. When I take a public health angle, and there have been some psychologists who approach this in this way too, is that the issue isn't men aren't toxic by nature or nurture. Um, Men come from all points all over the board, um, but what's toxic is men's choices and behaviors that are harmful. So in other words, people talk about threats to masculinity. So when someone's masculinity is threatened, the way you respond can be overcompensating, right? So you double down on a very, you know, you double down and you get violent, you get angry, you get frustrated. You say, I have permission to feel this way because it's the one way I can feel as a man is angry. That's the one thing I can do. And everyone pretty much expects it. And I have a free reign to do that. So to me, the threats that we look at, we look at the threat of um, women who threaten masculinity, either through their presence, power, resources. I mean, some way that sense of masculinity is threatened by women. We look at how men may be uh, threatened by uh, 
race, right? And so the mere uh, kind of existence in our lives of young men of color doing well can threaten other men who feel like, hey, that's my space. Hey, that's not, you know, that's the structural racist component. Um, and then there's the other threats to heteronormativity and cisnormativity. So there's one way of being a guy, and it's definitely not having a guy as a partner. It's definitely not being uh, a trans dad. And those that's threatening to my sense of masculinity. You know, it's interesting because until I became a mom of boys, I think like most humans, you know, we know our perspective. I was wrapped up in my perspective. Until I became a mom of boys, I was totally oblivious to the threats the male experience in the world. This was not something that I had ever considered. As a female, I was very aware, of course, of, you know, sexism and gender expectations and how that hurt or hindered me. But I would guess that there are a lot of people in your class who are sort of hearing about and thinking about this and acknowledging it for the first time. Yes, absolutely. And I think that the way, even just talking about masculinity in itself is not toxic. It's the ways that we react to things that threaten our sense of masculinity that go over the top, that become hyper-masculine and hurt other people, hurt men and women and children and other men in our lives, but also mm -hmm. hurt men themselves. I mean, what we find is that doubling down on anger is, you know, you've got one emotion you use and that's all you use it. You're not bearing all the other stuff that you might feel. You're not bringing it mm -hmm. to the surface. You're keeping it buried. And that leads to mental health issues later in life. It leads to depression, isolation. I mean, a whole number of things. And those have physical elements. I mean, they wear at your body too, that sense of stuffing all that down. I think it's kind of giving them a frame to think through some of this stuff is important. A really simple thing that students don't often get is how you never men never feel safe in their masculinity. So they're always challenged and always held accountable and you can never attain it. You always have to earn it. You can always be called out, right? I could walk down the street as a 57-year-old guy and someone would yell something out to me that would challenge my masculinity and I'd have to like deal with that, you know, which is absurd. <laughs> um, it is. And and I think about this, you know, as a woman and Janet, I'd like to hear your, your input. You know, certainly, yeah, women do get messages about how we're supposed to be in the world. And full disclosure, I am a white heterosexual woman. You know, I've personally never felt the need to defend my femininity in any way, shape or form. And nobody's ever questioned it. Every guy, you feel that. And it's a, it's a different thing. I think part of it is, as you're talking, Jen, is safety. You know, we have that place as women walking down the street. Are we safe? We've talked on the podcast about walking down the street, having a group of male teens walking towards us. And that moment of fear of, oh my gosh, group of teen males, how is that going to interact? Mostly as a 65-year-old white woman, I get ignored. So there's that. But, you know, just walking to the car at night, all those little places of, am I safe? And what you're saying is that men feel the same. Am I safe in my, in mm. who I am, in my masculinity? And I've kind of never put those two things together. So when so we're threatened as humans, we're going to react rather than respond. Wondering if you've ever felt this way, dear listeners, we're going to take a break and hear more from Kevin Roy after these messages from our sponsors. 
This episode is sponsored by ByHeart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about ByHeart baby formula. ByHeart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk, and ByHeart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on ByHeart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. ByHeart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider ByHeart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at ByHeart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. ByHeart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems how little we know and how for way too many people the answer seems to be yep that's the way it is deal with it mhm deal with it and not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause likely at this age but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty which is kind of nature's Irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time. Your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A.com slash ONBOYS. Winona, menopause care made easy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this has to do with, think about that group of teen boys walking by you or someone else. All of them are being called out in their masculinity because they've got to all act in this really cool way. And if someone doesn't act that way, they're going to be called out and say, you know, well, 
you know, such and such. And then you, and then you have to almost over respond to show how masculine you can be. Right. Because it is a question of like safety and acceptance for boys in that situation. I think women have different threats. I mean, when I think about body image, clearly, I mean, <laughs> there are ways to be feminine. And if you don't look a particular way, you, yep. you bring that in and it just, it eats at you and it's extremely harmful and health impacts are huge. We're seeing more and more of that for men. So mm -hmm. the one thing I get most of requests when I'll do things around campus is people come back to me and say, can you talk about body image? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I'm like, wow. And this is something that I don't think 10 years ago was, not, it was on the radar screen, but not much. We're not talking like now. muscle yeah. dysphoria, eating disorders. I mean, for, for athletes, but for every guy, um, there's a sense of having to look a particular way. And I, I see it with my kids too. I mean, <laughs> um, sure. I mean, you've got, what'd you say? Uh, 16, 16 what are the ages? 21 and 25. Yeah. I'm guessing I could be wrong, but I mean, it would, I would not be surprised in the least if at some point, you know, protein supplements showed up at oh your my. house or workout oh, yes. powder. And you're like, really, what are you doing guys? Why do we need this? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, that was this weekend. So <laughs> <You know? Okay. laughs> I mean, very much so some of it is like, a, a, I don't know, it's not a hardcore threat. It's a gentle threat. It's a, something you have to deal with, but there are repercussions if you don't handle it well for a guy. And so that even that group of boys walking down the street, I mean, to feel not sympathy, empathy for for Empathy. each of them, right? Mm -hmm. What about the guy who's leading the pack? Who's got to be this screaming, rabid, crazy guy? And if not, then he's playing against type and everyone, he loses respect. And then he's got to keep upping the ante and then requesting everyone else to do the same. That's a hard dynamic to change. That's kind of what we're, we need yeah. to do. <laughs> Empathy. I mean, in your yeah. class, by exposing students to each other and exploring these ideas, having them talk to dads and father figures, big empathy building exercise, and this listening to and understanding and having empathy for other people's experiences, I think is really needed these days. It's a skill. It doesn't, it, I mean, it happens with practice. And so I think um, part of the class dynamic, I try to do that in the assignments. I try to create some sense of, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And that's super important. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that. I want to talk about going back to preschool, early elementary. Jen and I have talked about boys playing with dolls. I mean, it's as basic as that. And this message that boys don't play with dolls, yet we want our boys to become men and fathers who are nurturing. And so I'm curious about what are your thoughts around the lack of training to mm -hmm. be a father? You know, our boys are not taking the, you know, how to be a parent class because there probably isn't how to be a parent class. What do you see in that lack and how can we begin to shift that notion to begin to talk to our young boys about this might be something you also want to do in your life is right. to become a father. Many haven't even given that thought until they are of parenting age. Right. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. Well, a couple of things. One is I think that it's hard for boys to, it's hard to teach that to a young boy. I think modeling it is an important way to think mm. about it. So if there are men in their lives who care for them, who hold them and talk to them about their feelings and cry with them and, and go out and play ball and, and watch sports too. I mean, the whole gamut of things, they're not going to see that that's not a way for a guy to be. And so as they right. grow up, 
whether it's with their, their friends, their partners, their kids, they're going to say, well, you know, and I actually get a lot of that from the students. They say, you know, my dad really wasn't like this traditional man. Like he was the single father who raised me. He's the one I go to when I want to like bear my soul, not my mom, you know? And this is like a revelation that, you know, this must be this odd guy. And they're not that odd, really. Um, I think that there are plenty of men out there. So part of it is if we want our boys to be that way, we have to be that way with them now. So to me, it there's a lot of things that start within families. Mm-hmm. And they also start within communities. Um, I think to the extent that we can have men who are... And I know there are lots of issues around. We've talked about this for decades about men who are working with youth, men who are teachers, men who are in caregiving occupations. That's a big thing. So, so again, boys are exposed to that and girls are too. So they expect men to be like that. What I get a lot from our college students for, and I ask the 18 year olds this, I say, how many, how many women here expect the men to care for and raise their kids equally with them? And they all put up their hands, you know, and I say, pretty much all of them. How many guys do too? And they say, oh yeah, you know, and then we talk about what happens after having kids after 10 years. You know, do you think that's true? You know, does it play out? Well, if it doesn't, why not? Like you want mm. that. Why can't you? Yeah. Do that? The other thing I will say is that I'm a big believer in, you may all have talked about the work that Naobi Wei does up at NYU. So mm-hmm. this young boys, um, deep secrets work that she does. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this with my own kids, I've seen it with other, their friends, I've seen it with my students that boys do have very close caring relationships with each other. Maybe not with girls as much, but these deep friendships between them where there's this intimacy, there's a, and it's a, it, you know, intimacy takes many different forms. It doesn't have to be kind of a, you know, handholding intimacy, but sometimes it is. Yes. Um, I love that you acknowledge that because I think that gets missed sometimes, especially by moms. Like, you know, they, we don't see our boys connecting the way we connect with friends. So we're like, he doesn't have any close friends, but that's not right. necessarily true. No. And I think I do feel like there is this turning point and I, I feel it's age 13 to me. It's like this pivot where suddenly boys stopping boys. They have to be young men or adolescents. They have to kind of give up those close friendships. They've got to find a girlfriend. They've got to start saying no homo all the time. Mm. They got to be how they look, what they wear. You got to be a jock. You've got all these things. And you see this sudden shift and oftentimes their bodies are changing. I mean, it's predictable. (laughs) You can anticipate it, but we don't. It comes as a shock. It's predictable. And yet we are all still totally surprised and like, what the hell is wrong with him? And the one thing I think that sometimes we have them give up and it could be uh, subconsciously is that you, you got to cut those relationships off with your close friends. You can't have a lot of guy close friends like that, those intimate relationships. And so to the extent that I've kind of watched all three of my, my boys as they've grown up, like having those relationships continue the ones that they were good friends with young and they still have those friends over time. Like, I think that's really important. Even though the guys are all being goofballs and doing things like, no, no, no. Like, you know, the fact that they're still doing this together and they care for each other is important. Goofballs. Here's a specific example. And you may get a (laughs) kick out of this because you have young men in your life as well. Goofballs. Mm -hmm. So when my youngest, you know, had a group of guys over, they did a, a, holiday gift exchange amongst themselves um some very hilarious things some things that i'm sure parents would be like that is utterly inappropriate but not harmful in the least and then this turned into challenging who could be outside in the snow in bare feet the longest and uh my youngest getting minor frostbite on his feet 
Awesome. That Goofballs. kind of thing yeah, is that's what we're talking behavior. about. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. He's fine now, just so Good. everybody knows. It was indeed minor frostbite, him and, well, the other guy that won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pushing pushing limits, uh, taking risks. You know, that's all part of it. Um, yeah. As long as it's within safe some safe bounds, yeah. I'm so curious. I mean, you are uh, clearly a thoughtful man. You are a nationally recognized fatherhood expert. You teach a class where you discuss masculinity. I don't have those credentials, but I do have teenage sons who have at some point, as teenagers only can, go, you're writing a book about parenting? (laughs) So I would love to hear um, more about how you juggle the expert part of yourself with the family part of yourself and how helpful your expertise was as you were dealing with 13-year-olds and 15-year-olds. That's that's a great question. I think from the very beginning, I have never, ever thought of myself as an expert at anything. I'm kind of like a lifelong learner, right? So I was a graduate student uh, in Chicago, and I started working on the south side of Chicago with young black fathers. And of course, they were like, you know, why do you want to work with, you're a big white guy, why do you want to work with black fathers? And I was like, because you're the only group doing this. Like, I really think it's important. And these were young men who had kids and I didn't have kids at that point. Right. And they would tell me when you have kids, this is what you're going to have to deal with. And this is where you're going to have to be aware of. And they were like, even though, you know, you live up and, you know, some kind of posh little area up in Chicago, or you've got a degree, like these are things you're going to have to deal with. And these are men who they had nothing and their lives were really rough and they would keep showing up for their kids or wanting to show up and trying to make it happen in ways that I saw men who just take so much for granted or don't care, you know, Sure. this is an aside, but I, I had a young father tell me, he's like, you know, I'm getting off a drug problem. I just got a job. I haven't seen my kids in a couple of years, but I go to my daughter's soccer games all the time. And she wears her feet are growing so fast. She's got like size 14s and, you know, and he was talking to a funder of this program, this very wealthy white lawyer in Chicago who also said, Oh, my daughter plays soccer. And he said, well, God, you must be so proud. Like what size shoe does she wear? And he was like, I have no idea. I mean, I haven't been to one of her games in months, you know, and, and that hit me like, okay, fathering is not about your status or what you got, you know, in your pocket. It is so much about that interaction and kind of, it's not just change of heart because it is, it is so very personal, but a lot of it is for me, it was working to get these guys what they needed to show up for their kids. And a lot of that is through the courts and through the jobs and through housing and, you know, stuff. Yeah. Anyway. So I've always kind of seen myself as someone who listens and is learning about this experience. Right. And I can say, I learned a ton before I became a father through the work with young black fathers. And I think as I brought it to my kids over time, I mean, I've been clearly like consumed with this identity of being a father, but I'm definitely not thinking I've got all the answers by any stretch. I think every person who becomes a father draws from their own experiences and says, well, my dad did some great things and other things, and not so much. I'm going to do them differently, right? And so I think that's that juggling piece. And I realize mm-hmm. that my kids are going to feel the same with me. Like, I know. I'm not trying to do everything perfectly because I'm going to try to, I'm going to bring myself and do the best I can at that moment. And they may say years later, well, it was a dumb move, you know? Okay. Yep. 
I think it's been interesting because uh, they've taken two of them have taken the course. One of them took it during COVID, so it was on Zoom. And <laughs> how um, weird to be in a Zoom class. Well, I was doing it dad. here. I was yeah. literally in this room, which his was his boyhood room growing up, and I was teaching him. And this it was very strange. Wow. Um, but he he they both said to me, you know, yeah, we've heard a lot of this stuff. Like we get where you're coming from. They helped me think about how to present it to other men and women. I'd say, well, sure. you know, how do you think, you know, we should do this or whatever? Because um, I don't have all the answers. And and I think part of it is to make things less intellectual, to make them less academic, to like bring it home to people's real lives mm -hmm. and just be open and listening to them as we go through. And so if I say they, they rant and rail about politics, they get furious about someone coming out saying, oh, you know, masculinity is this or folks on social media who are just toxic beyond the extreme, they get very angry. And they're kind of ambassadors for me. So they will talk to their friends about this and they'll have some ideas about how to think about this, how to problematize some of the behavior that you might see of this guy who's ranting and raving about women and you know how he feels about women and what he calls women online, right? So that's I think that's good too. They also take it very tongue in cheek. So I had a <laughs> I had um one of my my son's friends who uh I guess they were joking around a couple weeks ago. And uh, one of my son's friends said to his girlfriend, Hey, I think you should do it this way. And he's like, Hey, wait a minute. That's not very man up of you, you know? And so it was this kind of tongue in cheek. I mean, you know, no one was overbearing in, in the way they were interacting, yeah. yep. but he made it, he made it kind of tongue in cheek. And I thought I was first, I was like, should I take offense to that? <laughs> so I thought, no, cause it's, it's all, we're all kind of coming at this in different ways. As long as and, he recognizes know, that, that's pretty that's cool. That's so interesting too, because like joking is a language, especially among young men mm -hmm. who are navigating these expectations of masculinity right now. And so, you know, it's a lot easier to say it tongue in cheek and sort of as a joke, but underlying that, like he gets everything you said, but he's not yet at a stage in his life where he can say, my wise beloved father says, you know, like exactly that's not totally. how they communicate with, no. with one another. And as a parent, there are things that if you didn't know me or know my children, you might hear them say, and you would may think it's disrespect, mm -hmm. or you may think um, like, wow, it's their language. It's our language. It's learning each other. It's accepting what we have to give at this point in time. I have learned to communicate in their way in a lot of ways. If fathering is so important, and I think we all agree that it is, where are we providing spaces for dads to talk about being a dad? Answers to that after these messages. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons 
entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time. Your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A dot com slash on boys. Winona, menopause care made easy. And speaking of communication, I'm a family coach. So I work with moms and dads last 20 years. And often dads will come reluctantly because just because their wives want them to come. And I guess this is kind of a heartache for me is that they're is not a lot of spaces for men to talk about fathering. And I love that you created this space with these black fathers and yet, and I'm hopeful that your class is opening up. Hey, we can talk about this, but there's a lot of dads out there right now who, you know, they have their wives saying, honey, this is how we need to parent. These are the decisions. And maybe there's an occasion where the parents are together in a group setting and dads Mm -hmm. might, you know, over a beer talk about something, but there is just not a place and an ability to allow men to open up about fathering. How can we foster those conversations without it being the women saying, honey, you need to go and get together with a bunch of men and talk about fathering. I think part of it is being very creative and open to these spaces happening wherever and whenever they are. So where do men usually gather? So we have a bunch of, for example, in the school of public health um, interventions that we do in barbershops because that's where men are and that's where they talk real talk. And so you go and you talk about colon cancer and you can do COVID screenings. You can do a whole range of things. And we do kind of mental health interventions there too. There's a whole set of interventions. And this is primarily in African-American communities where barbers are Mm -hmm. kind of the go-to person to refer people to mental health resources around the area. So you start a conversation with the guy in the chair, you know, that's one place. Um, We had an experience, uh, we're doing an intervention around mental health and trauma with young young adolescents from the Northern Triangle. So El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Here in DC, we are kind of the hub of folks immigrating 
to this oh, okay. spot. This is so we have thousands of young people. Some of their families are here, and so we work in the community around this. And they do after-school programming and a number of things. And we have this one kind of peer-led group where peers lead discussions around mental health. And so it's very hands-on. It's very uh, a lot of trust in that group. We had mothers go through it, and we had over 600 mothers participate in this in the course of the first year. I mean, it was all the women who stepped up and said, I need this. This is so important. And it was coming out of the pandemic. But what happened is, as they were on FaceTime <laughs> on their phones, having these discussions, mm -hmm. the men in their lives would be like, what's that? What do you, Hey, yeah. I want that, you know? And so we started to create men's groups. We thought this would never happen with kind of, uh, you know, older Latino men who are, right. Immigrants and kind of a very traditional understanding Machismo of masculinity. culture and the whole so thing. That's exactly what they said. They love being together. It had a very different vibe, but they got through. Now they are kind of leading their own groups and they talk about the legacy of machismo and how they talk about, they talk about the heavy hand of it and how it's just kept them in a place where they couldn't figure out what they needed to do next. And so they talk about depression. They talk about anxiety and stress and ways that, they can rely on each other to deal with some of that. They can talk to their kids about it. Um, the cool thing is about, I think about a family intervention. Like if young people are going through that in the schools and their mom and dad are taking groups like this, then they're suddenly all kind of on the same page, wanting to, knowing yeah. the importance of talking about some yeah. of this. So I think part of it is not choosing like, oh, here's a space to create a men's group because then it's kind of... Um, I mean, sometimes that works, but then it's almost kind of segregated out as kind of a weird, wild thing. Look, yeah. this is where the men get together. It's a drum circle that we meet on the weekends and beat our chest. That's fine, but it should really be kind of wherever there's um, a capacity to kind of open up those groups, kind of like pop-ups, really. Yeah, um, kind of where like, you know, where are people already gathering yeah, and touching base and absolutely. what kind of support can we give to that and let that grow? Right. And I think, you know, some of, sometimes that requires resources where people have to step up and say, okay, we're going to find someone to facilitate that or a space to do it. Other times it may not. Part of it is, I think, giving permission and knowledge that, well, men will come and it's okay to do this, that this is, a, it's good for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's not a lifetime commitment. It doesn't label you in a particular way. Um, if, if it feels like something you want to do, let's do it. You mentioned, you know, working with the fathers on the South side of Chicago. Um, I know you've done other work with fathers. I know that uh, in your, your book, you also talk about the need to support fathers, our society to support fathers, regardless of marital status, regardless mm -hmm. of residential status. This is a, I'm going to say hot button topic again. Like, I feel like everything's a hot button topic right now. We had uh, Richard B. Reeves on the show and, you know, he, same position on that. Like, listen, we need to support dads where they are. They are critically important in the lives of children, all children. Let's support them. Um, and I've already seen some pushback to that idea saying, uh, yes, and the best way to do that. And the only way to do that is, you know, marriage, you have to focus on marriage first. I'm sure you hear this as well. Mm -hmm. So one, how do you respond to that? What thoughts should the rest of us keep in mind? And what more can we do as individuals and in society to support dads where they are? And frankly, to move beyond some of our preconceived notions that if a dad is not living in the same house with his kids, you know, 24 seven, he's not a good dad. I think right. that's BS personally. No, I, I do too. And we, we talk about provide and reside dads, basically that, you know, if it, 
you have to have a job and living with your kids and, and married. And once you hit all those buttons, it's the package deal. And then you're a good father and everything else is a fail. Um, <laughs> so I think if we look at the way even our policies are built around work for men and, and the assumption mm -hmm. that men have to have a job or that men are the priority to give jobs to if they don't have jobs. And we've had that for hundreds of mm -hmm. years in the U.S. And the way we think about and validate and support marriage um, and, and marriage is extremely important. But I think that when there's such diversity in this country that the vast majority of kids don't live in um, co-residential marid, marital households, particularly over time, because situations change. Right. Most kids, most kids are living in a situation where one parent is not there. Parents are moving in and out of jobs. Men and women are sharing those traditional kind of one lane roles they used to have. We have to recognize that fathering is happening outside of marriage. It's happening outside of jobs. It's happening outside of residence. All of those things don't guarantee good fathering even. You get them all together. doesn't mean you're a good father. Right. I mean, that's um, the thing too. We have lots of examples of dads who did live in the same house and were frankly terrible fathers. Yeah. Yeah. So that's no guarantee. No. So I think some of Richard Reeves' solutions are I will say very traditional. It's ways we've approached working with young men and fathers for decades, which is when they need to get jobs, they need to get, you know, stability, they have to have something to offer. I think all those things are, they're pretty standard um, and important. I don't think that they're the end all be all. I, I've worked for many, many years with programs that are set to get young unemployed fathers jobs. Does that change their lives? A little bit. Those jobs are not sustainable. It doesn't yeah. mean they become involved. It's a piece of the puzzle, but that should be, we should be working towards employment for men and women across the board from a young age and not just hear the fathers, you know? And so I think to me, what I've moved from is kind of a focus on here are these problem fathers who just need, you know, a job and a house and marriage, and then we'll solve all this. Everything would be great to, we need a much wider lens onto what happens with people over time, young boys growing up. These are young girls. I don't want to say boys are, you know, should mm -hmm. take priority over girls at all. And I think that this notion of masculinities and the way they play out are really important. And that gets shoved aside. We kind of assume mm -hmm. fathers look one way, right? Yeah. We have a whole, I have a whole couple of weeks we spend on with um, seahorse dads, trans dads, queer dads. And this notion of fathering outside the box of anything that looks like, you know, the, the, the traditional, traditional father. Right? And how do we support any adult who wants to step up and care for kids? Because that to me is the biggest deal is like, we need to bring as many people to the table, adults who mm -hmm. are bringing resources and love to kids, regardless of who they are. Like that's, that's the right. biggest thing. Not insisting they have to look one way or that kind of be two and their biological parents and that's a household. And so, um, because that's the way people live. It's not just because it's what research shows or what our beliefs are, but people live this way in our world. And to believe they don't is really not being honest with ourselves. So we have to meet people where they are. I think the the fathering issue is interesting. I'll give you a, a quick example. When I started working, it was during the Clinton administration, and their big push was for responsible fatherhood, which was the Million Man March. It was the promise keepers. It was step up and say, mea culpa, I made a mistake. I wasn't there for my kids. I need a change of heart. And once you do that, 
then everything magic is magic, right? And what I realized is in the communities, I mean, that's a way to sell your program maybe, and that's important. There's no question. But without some kind of real policies and changes, <laughs> that's not enough. I mean, it's not right? going to be, you know, I feel I woke up this morning and I feel warm to my child in a, a new way. And that's not going to make a big difference. It's part of the puzzle, but it's not, we got to go further. Always. Got to go further, but you're expanding so many people's vision of masculinity, of fatherhood through this course. And you also have a book. So we have, there's a book called Nurturing Fatherhood, and it's it's about social policies. I wrote it with Bill Marsiglio, who is um, a sociologist at University of Florida. It's been out for a little while in Russell Sage, and it, it's really all interviews. I mean, it's just, both of us have done interviews with men in Love so it. many different spaces and places. But it is kind of like moving towards the notion that we all should be um, supported to give care to kids. And there are ways we can do that through structured policy. Mm -hmm. There are ways that families can promote that. And where can our listeners find more of your writing? I know you have some articles out there. Yeah. I mean, I would say you can you can jump on the web and just search, search my name. I had a, a nice op-ed come up, which I think you all saw on the Baltimore Sun that um, mm -hmm. talks about Ted Lasso and how this different notion of masculinity comes from that. I mean, I think that's been kind of interesting, but yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that. Um, I also have a, a homepage at the university that's you know easy to find and lots of links to things to read from there. And we haven't even talked about Barbie, but that's going to have to wait for it's another true. day. To bring me back. We'll we have you back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, we all should be supported to give care to kids. It's so simple. It's so straightforward. To me, it's so obvious and non-arguable. And yet, we have so much work to do towards that. I, I feel often like we're living in the society that gives lip service to kids and families are the most important thing, but our policies and our, our communities are not necessarily supporting of that. And so we struggle. The more we can do that and keep that in mind, everybody who wants to give care to our kids, come on in. I can use all the help that I can get. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. I would love to take your class, but I don't know if that's too practical. Do you ever <laughs> offer it virtually? We do, actually. Yeah. So uh, we're working on that. So huh. I'll, I'll let you know if uh, if we pull that together. I would go. love to hear more about that. <laughs> thank you so much for joining you us. Bet. Thank you. We hope you found value in this conversation with Kevin Roy and learning more about his Man Up course at the University of Maryland. This is the Envoys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-host, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Thanks for being our listeners, and thank you, too, for supporting our sponsors. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.